welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wallace. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad to be back with you this Tuesday afternoon, and we're going to be talking with one of our senior correspondents, Dr. Adriana Sanford, on a couple of interesting topics. But before we get to Adriana, I'd like to chat with my co-host, Lou Wise, who's president of All Metals and Forge Group, who's the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. Lou, how are you today? I'm doing swell. I'm doing swell. And, uh, uh, I understand that you're off in the hinterlands of Wisconsin today instead of Atlanta. Yes, I'm uh, so far up north in Wisconsin. I was lucky to get signal on anything. Do they have uh, Do they have towers up there? I think they think a tall pine tree is a tower. <laughs> okay, okay. So to start off uh, the show today, I wanted to give a postscript about uh, our last week's show for our listeners. Uh, it was uh, a little bit different than uh, our, our normal shows uh, in that uh, we did have Brad Holcomb, committee chair of the uh, Institute of Supply Management, uh, giving his uh, read and assessment of the uh, June uh, PMI report or uh, report on business. And uh, just to report that to those who haven't heard the number, uh, the total index number was 53. Two, which was up, and that's good to see. And as a manufacturer in my other life, uh, new orders, 57.0. Terrific number, terrific number. Uh, if you want to read, uh, if you want to hear uh, Brad's complete assessment and review of the report, uh, he's very upbeat. And um, I think you ought to listen to it because instead of just getting sound bites on ABC and CNN and NBC and all the rest of the alphabet, uh, you will get a complete assessment from the man who wrote it. So uh, I strongly suggest that you listen to last week's show. Along with that, however, we did have uh, Chris, Dr. Chris Keel, a PhD economist. He's with FMA and Strategist, and he gave the Credit Managers Index report. Uh, Dr. Chris wasn't quite as upbeat as Brad, so it's kind of interesting, uh, the dichotomy of the two uh, assessments. So, uh, I, I, again, I strongly suggest that you tune in and make your own decision or assessment and how it relates to your particular business, whether it's good or it's bad. Um, it's, it's an interesting show, and I recommend it strongly. And that is at mfgtalkradio.com. A couple of news items uh, that's happening around the, uh, the world. I mean, we're pretty much all uh, heard everything that's gone on regarding uh, Dallas and uh, the issues, uh, uh, the black and white issues and police issues that are going on in the country today. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, later near the end of the show. Um, however, the, uh, the couple of news items, which I found kind of interesting, and I don't think a lot of people know about it, and that is, one, there was a Trade Secrets Act passed in April, 
by guess who? The House and the Senate. We don't hear about that. How come uh, our alphabet soup news media outlets didn't let anybody know about it? Uh, they did sign it, and what that's all about, it does protect manufacturers' intellectual property that includes uh, things like even customer lip, uh, lists, and it includes uh, manufacturing and production processes. Uh, it protects the American manufacturer to a degree that has never been before. So you might want to take a look at that and Google Trade Secrets Act passed in April. Um, here's a shocker. California beats Texas as the top dog manufacturing state in the country. It now is number one. Texas is number two. Um, that's probably going to flip-flop as soon as oil ever comes back. Uh, California's uh, manufacturing revenues for this year was $881 billion to Texas $847 billion. So you come in second, Texas, but oil will come back. Last item, and this is a real sign of the times uh, event that's occurring. ISO, Institute of uh, uh, the International Standards Organization, came out with a standard for collaborative robots called now COBOTS. It's ISO number slash TS15066. And manufacturers have quickly accepted the idea of working side by side with uh, robotic companions. Collaborative uh, robots, otherwise known as, again, cobots, have revolutionized what it means to have a robot in the manufacturing shop floor. They're no longer segregated, in some cases, by cages. Uh, these robots have sensitivity. They can recognize a human that's there, so it knows not to run you over or hurt you. But the interesting part is that they now have uh, created this ISO standard, which will, uh, on a global basis, make them all uniform in uh, many of the component uh, technologies that make up uh, cobotics. So again, you might want to look a little further into that. It's ISO TS15066. And uh, again, to go back to our last week's show, it's mfgtalkradio.com. And uh, we're now going to uh, hear from our guest, and I'll flipping it back to Tim. Today our guest is Professor Adriana Stanford, Senior International Correspondent for Corporate Compliance and Ethics with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Uh, Dr. Stanford is also Dean's Visiting Scholar at Georgetown University Law Center and a Visiting Research Professor at the Universidad de Tampa in Chile. Uh, Adriana has been with us before talking on a number of subjects, particularly transatlantic data flow, privacy, data protection. We're going to touch on all those subjects today. Adriana, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tim. Adriana, just uh, briefly, why don't we touch on the hot topic of the day, which turns out to be Brexit and what uh, the uh, exit of the U.K. from the E.U. is going to have on some of these issues, such as privacy, data protection, uh, uh, innovation, uh, as you see it coming in the very near future. Sure. Well, what we are seeing now is we obviously have a fractured transatlantic uh, landscape. 
And uh, this issue, we really don't have a clear road as to how it's going to affect the UK or, or Europe. But what we can talk about is the impact that we, we, we are concerned about, um, especially for, I would say, innovation. Uh, how will Brexit, Brexit affect UK innovation and, and innovation in Europe? Um, one of the concerns that we have is the Brexit will now create some issues with regards to employees and obviously U.S. companies that have headquarters in the U.K. Uh, or plants, manufacturing plants in the U.K. because these employees that are located there, some of them are not U.K. citizens. They are actually Europeans from other parts uh, of Europe that are working there. And to be exact, I think there's like three million individuals from other countries uh, in Europe that are living in the UK and also we have over 1.2 million UK citizens that are living in other parts of Europe. Now how does this affect us? How does this affect our companies and how does this affect the supply chain? Well the issue is when, the, when we start having restrictions on our borders, this means that these individuals that are accustomed to basically traveling throughout Europe just like we do here in the United States between Texas and you know New Jersey and California, are now going to be restricted. So it will be harder for them. We don't know how hard because we don't have a clear um, view of what's going to be happening, but we do know that it will be harder for them to do business and provide services. And if you've got your manufacturing plant located in the UK and you're exporting to the other 27 European countries, this might be a challenge. It might create some you know, taxes, some restrictions. It all depends on the free trade agreements that are negotiated, that the UK can negotiate as to how it's actually going to affect us in our supply chain. But it, it, it may create some issues there. Let me ask you a question, uh, Adriana. Uh, before you, uh, the EU, there was a Europe that were all individual countries, and they all had passports and they all had uh, uh, borders and they all they had all these same things before that we're now saying we're not not sure how they're going to handle it now how did they handle it then right that's that a good question so Lou. Different. well that's a good question Lou and the difference is no it it definitely can be handled and we handle it when we go to Mexico when we have our, our executives from California travel down to Mexico or anywhere in Latin America, they're close by and we just jump on a plane with our passport. But the difference is when you're looking at the UK, these individuals jump on a plane and in an hour basically are doing business in, in Brussels. They're doing, you know, not in an hour for Brussels, but basically jump on a plane and in, 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 in a few minutes are doing business in different parts of, the, of, uh, of Europe. That flexibility won't be as easy because now, um, you, you know, you've got these, these borders and we don't really know what that means, but they do a lot more business back and forth in one day. Um, and that ease of doing business was a reason that the EU came together. We had the European Union because we wanted the flow to go quickly between, you know, regarding the products, regarding the services, and re regarding immigration. And another concern or another issue that we need to look at is all these individuals that are in the UK that now need to move because the UK is going to be controlling their borders. Um, those will be displaced and those will be going into the other part of Europe. And we are not really sure how that's going to affect Europe either. So we're, we're not only looking at the UK, 
um, but we're looking at individuals that will be probably moved um, to other parts of these other countries. So does that mean, Adriana, that somebody working in the UK now has to be concerned with their work visa because they're from one of the EU countries and vice versa with uh, UK citizens working in the EU? Well, that's where we're. Well, that's the concern, correct? And we don't know what's going to happen, but that might be an issue. What is the work visa, and what you know? What do we need to do? Okay, okay. I'm sure there are all kinds of tariff conversations that are going to come up as well about you know what they have to pay for imports and exports, etc. That that went away when the EU, as a, when they were a member of the EU, that they're not now going to be. Is that right? Exactly, and this uncertainty you know, that will have an impact on business. Now, it's a short term, you know, until we know. I think it takes, well, it's going to be two years until this totally is uh, actually the, the exit uh, is finished. That's what we are told. It's going to take about two years. Um, but in the meantime, there will be some concern and the impact on, on economic and, and obviously foreign policy interests. So, uh, Adriana, this is uh, Luke again. Uh, aside from the cultural uh, nostalgia of Britain's uh, lost place in the world and the immigration issue that is uh, uh, affecting Europe, what are the other reasons that England would have chosen to bow out? Well, the... And we don't know necessarily if this is going to be a good thing or a bad thing. We're not really sure if if the U.K.'s decision to move out actually helps them. Um, you know, we may see other countries in Europe do the same thing. One of the reasons the U.K., or one of the, I would say, the pros of, of leaving, um, you could say, would be greater flexibility to deal with other countries because the the UK now is not going to have to comply with all the EU standards, which are many. So a country doing business with them, there'll be greater flexibility between them and the UK um, to negotiate uh, agreements. Maybe this will help them with India. Maybe this will help them with China. It, this is not necessarily a bad thing. Right now there's uncertainty as to whether this is good or bad for the UK. And other concerns are whether Scotland stays whether they, they actually leave in order to join the EU, you know, whether what is happening with Ireland, what's happening with Gibraltar. We, we're not sure how all of this is going to affect that region. Um, and, again, if this is something positive, it, if actually one of the concerns that the U.K. had was the amount of individuals coming in to their region and uh, from other countries, and they wanted to limit that. They also were very concerned, obviously, with terrorism. And this is going to um, provide them, I guess, more security and the ability to control who's in their country. So there are, there are many reasons as to why the individuals, I'm sure, voted, you know, to do this. Um, the youth, of course, were against this. And their concern is, I think, one of their big concerns was the fact that now the youth in the U.K. does not have access to, to live and work as freely as they did in the 27 other countries. It's changed. Um, and it will be pretty similar, I think, to the way it would be for the, an American to want to work over there. So, but we don't know. This is all we're waiting to hear and find out exactly what this means. What we do know is that the U.K. is losing the benefit of being able to influence uh, the EU's decisions and uh, their impact on uh, 
you know, on, on anything else in, that's happening in the EU. And um, whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing, you know, whether it makes them less attractive or more attractive to a trading partner, we'll, you know, is what we'll have to find out. Um, I think one of the problems that the UK has, has had or is having is that I don't think that they, even though they did join the EU, I don't think that they ever really felt as though that they were part of the continent and part of Europe. Uh, they have, and they always refer to Europe as the continent. They see themselves as a side and separate from that. Uh, is, isn't that basically true? Well, I've heard that. I've heard that comment as well. I don't know if it is true or not, but what I can say is the fact that now they have the ability to stand on their own and make their own decisions, and they're free from, you know, they're 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 basically free and and more flexible to do what they want to do with other countries and to promote um, themselves and, and try to get those uh, those companies. Um, whatever arrangements they need. There have been some issues with our U.S. tech companies in the past, um, concerns about them, uh, whether they could comply or, um, you know, the difficulties that they were having with the EU data protection regulation. I think they've been ironed out now, but I know that the U.K. was always concerned as to um, what some of those um, the points in the regulation were. Interestingly, though, is no matter what, our U.S. companies have to comply with all of the EU data protection uh, regulation because it is binding on all the other um, countries in Europe. And so, you know, the, it's called, actually it's called the EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. And uh, the U.K. will have to comply with that as well. Now, the, the issue is between the U.K. and the U.S., they can have some kind of an arrangement um, on these issues. How do you feel about uh, how much of an effect the $350 million a week that the U.K. had to give the EU? I mean, did that play a big part in the decision-making that it might be better to spend that kind of money in their own country than supporting lesser countries in Europe? Well, I can't really give my opinion on, on you know, what these issues mean and, and what these decisions um you know, whether these are good decisions or not. What I can say, though, is the all of Europe right now is, you know, big on innovation, and the U.K. is going to make decisions that they believe are going to help them, and uh, the EU has made decisions that hopefully with, you know, Horizon 2020 we'll see a lot of changes, we'll see a lot more people brought into um, to this region and feel more comfortable um, in, in, in bringing their their ideas, um, but I can't really, you know, opine on on these decisions okay. as to whether or not they're <laughs> they were good or bad. Okay. You, you you did bring up innovation uh, a moment ago, and I just wanted to ask uh, regarding Horizon 2020. Can you speak to that uh, that program? Sure. Well, Horizon 2020 is a way for companies to get some funding and 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 and. Actually, it's it's a big it's it's a big push that they have right now, um, and they've been working towards. And I think the EU data protection regulation and all of this is going towards that. Um, London has been a hub to Europe's entrepreneurs, and uh, for you know for a very long time, in, because of the financial and business hubs, many companies 
have their headquarters or plants there, and they have started there. It, it's great access to most customers in Europe, and um, and this is where you can export from to the rest of Europe. And as I mentioned before, we don't know if their new Brexit, you know, the exit is going to affect them, and it all depends on whether there's, uh, you know, good trade agreements negotiated. Now, with regards to their innovation, though, um, up to now, we know for innovation you need cross-fertilization. We need a good breeding ground. Now, cross-fertilization may be impacted if individuals from other parts of Europe are not able to work freely in the UK. So there we see a little bit of a change. Um, the other question is how will, what kind or what part will UK play with Horizon 2020? Horizon 2020 is an innovation and funding initiative. Um, and there are other countries that are not part of the EU that are participating. We have Israel and Norway. So we don't really know what the UK is going to do, but this will give access to EU funding. So it's an important piece. And that, uh, you know, go ahead, uh, uh, I'm Europe sorry. sees investment and innovation as one of their core objectives, and Horizon 2020 mm -hmm. is that push. Um, do you have any sense uh, at this point, uh, and I know it's early in the game and it's going to take years to unravel or re-ravel uh, the uh, EU, uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on how Brexit is going to affect uh, manufacturing slash economy in the U.S., aside from the fact that the stock market took a major plunge and then a nice bounce back, but how is that going to affect manufacturing here? Well, it, it depends on what happens with our workers, with those that have plants there, with those that have headquarters there. Um, there's a whole bunch of different issues that where it could affect. Um, up until now, you know, the UK has been the gateway to EU markets, and is it going to continue? If it doesn't continue, we've got those companies in the US that are going to move their hubs, that are going to move their headquarters to a different country. Um, you know, Berlin and Munich, they say, are some of the hubs for innovation. Um, we don't know if the banking industry is going to stay put there or if they, you know, those banks in, that are located in London may move to Frankfurt. Um, all these issues will, will obviously contribute to to how um, the supply chain reacts and everyone else, you know, these companies in the United States actually, what the, the steps that they take. The, uh, what, Institute, of, the, the Institute of Supply Management did a supplemental uh, survey uh, which actually came out today, and uh, talking about uh, Brexit and how they feel uh, their uh, participants view uh, how their business is going to be affected. And just summing up uh, a five-page report that I, I read this morning, it seems as though that there's a fairly significant group of people who are uh, uh, concerned Roughly 52% of people are concerned, but there's also 61% who believe that there's going to be a negligible impact on the manufacturing economy in the country. So uh, this is not a question, it's more like a statement that we'll just have to see how this uh, plays out in the future. Right, right. And, we'll, we'll, you know, this is obviously on everybody's mind, and 
You know, the U.K., if you take a look, the U.K. direct foreign investment in 2014, 2015, a lot of it, the major contributors were not only India and France, but also the U.S. And the question is whether or not that will continue and, um, you know, whether this, if, it's, if, if they do well, we'll see probably other countries leaving the EU. And if they don't do well, it will obviously have an impact on us. Um, because of the amount of work that we do together, anything that hurts the economy in the U.K. will affect our, our companies here as well. It will have an impact on our economy. Surely. Surely. We've, we've had you uh, on the show before talking about privacy concerns, and, and in the EU they have a, a true right to privacy. In the U.S. we have a reasonable expectation of privacy, but there have been some things that have been changing in terms of data protection. What are the recent developments now in the uh, in the EU regarding data protection? Well, the, we had been talking before about the EU-US uh, new privacy shield uh, arrangement, and there were some concerns there as to whether this new arrangement um, had dealt with some of the issues that invalidated the safe harbor agreement last year in October. And recently, we have been able to negotiate a deal which we believe will stand, and that will be taking place. The new, we're in transition now so that we can actually start, again, transferring data back and forth between Europe and the United States. And we're pretty sure, but we're not 100% sure, um, that this new privacy shield will actually um, be able to stand up should it be questioned, should it later come before the European Court of Justice. Um, and if, you know, we hope that this new arrangement is subsequently challenged in court, uh, will adequately address the concerns that were outlined in the Schrems case, which was the one that invalidated the safe harbor agreement last year. Okay, and Edrena, when we had you on the show some well, time back, we were talking about the Microsoft conundrum where they were caught between two sets of laws did that issue get ironed out? I am not sure exactly where they are on that issue. I know that we still have a concern about uh, multi-jurisdictional issues. I have been actually working on other research, and um, so I can't really tell you where, you know, I haven't looked at that recently, but I do know that, you know, one of the big issues that our companies still face and, and is, is multi-jurisdictional requirements that compete or conflict with one another. This is still one of the primary concerns of all, you know, global businesses and their executives. And if you would touch briefly, because I know we have in the past, but I just want to refresh people's uh, memories on this. You know, we always think that, okay, a corporation gets themselves into a situation, but you continue to mention and its executives. Can you explain the and its executives part? Well, what happens is the laws in other countries sometimes require our executives to take steps that uh, they are not required to take or should not be taken uh, in this country um, or under our legislation. And in those cases, that can produce criminal liability for those executives. So these are some of the issues and some of the concerns that we have. Um, our laws are different, and sometimes there's conflicts of laws um, that need to be addressed and are not currently addressed. And is that, is that happening in any of the safe harbor discussion? No, no, the safe harbor discussion has been addressed through the EU Privacy Shield. That is replacing 
um, the safe harbor agreement. Okay. So I we shouldn't see any issues I'm, there. I'm, okay. The, the issues that we're seeing is where there may be some concerns, and there have been concerns in the past, deal more with the rights of um, where companies and executives, you know, some, some concerns for companies are when they are requested by U.S. law enforcement uh, to turn over information and uh, they haven't taken the right steps yet or it's, it's before they actually get the permission from other countries to do so. There might be an issue. Or where there's money laundering or some other cases where there may be some some kind of criminal activity and under the laws of other countries, we, our executives are required to disclose or to go forward or they have their very own money laundering offenses in those countries. Those are situations where we don't really have, um, um, we have not worked it out with those countries and it can create criminal liability for executives if they don't speak up, if they don't report. Okay, okay. Now, the, the transatlantic flow of data, what is happening in that realm? Is that really part of what we've been discussing, or is there that's, more to yes, that? Yes, that's, exactly, no, that's exactly what we've been discussing with this new privacy shield, and we believe at this point that we've ironed that out. Okay, but you're, you're, did you say you were hoping for it to be challenged in court? or No, 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 we hope. We hope to prevail if it is challenged because we may have another case similar to the Shrems case where, um, you know, the, the Shrems case basically last year, that was Maximilian Shrems versus uh, the Data Protection Commissioner. That legal case affected thousands of our U.S. companies um, that had previously self-certified to ensure adequate protection um, that was demanded under the EU Data Protection Directive. That was invalidated, um, and the reason it was invalidated by, by the European Court of Justice was that they said that um, it didn't provide enough assurances that that information that was transferred would not somehow um, go into or, or, or be seen under U.S. surveillance laws or mass surveillance practices, and they wanted to make sure that companies that had data, such as Facebook, Google, Microsoft, um, companies that collect data, um, did not automatically give that information or make it readily available to U.S. intelligence, um, you know, without uh, taking the steps necessary that the uh, Europeans um, have requested under the rights to privacy. Okay, okay. And now the so the Shrems case, uh, I apologize, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, is this an individual that uh, has a or had a case with the Data Protection Commissioner? Well, what happened was that Maximilian Schrems was a law student studying at Santa Clara, and he brought a case in Europe um, after speaking with an executive from Facebook and learning um, that their information in Europe was not, as he believed, as secure as it should be and was in violation of their privacy rights. That case was brought in Europe, and it went through, and the Ireland... Um, Privacy Commissioner had ruled that there was no issue, um, and so subsequently it went to the European Court of Justice, and that's where the case is Maximilian Trems versus the Data Protection Commissioner uh, legal case, and that was looked at by the European Court of Justice, and as a result of that ruling, uh, the EU-US Safe Harbor Agreement, which had been in place for years, uh, was invalidated in October 2015, and that basically was what we were using to legitimize the 
transfers of personal data between Europe and the United States. So it was, it was a big deal. And that actually came okay. as a result of a law student. Uh, okay, I didn't, under, I didn't understand that. Uh, right. Uh, that, that, right, that was Schrems. And, and the concern is whether another Schrems type case comes forward, whether or not the, uh, the new EU US privacy shield will, will, you know, still hold up. Um, the big concern was, you know, the ruling in the, in the Schrems case came in light of the revelations made by, in 2013 by Ed Snowden concerning the activities of. Uh, the U.S. Intelligence Services and the NSA. Okay, okay. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we are going to be back with uh, Dr. Adriana Sanford. So uh, we'll be back after a few words from our sponsor. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800 600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Back with Dr. Adriana Sanford. We've been speaking with her on some of the issues, uh, including Brexit, privacy, data protection, and the transatlantic flow of data. Uh, Adriana, mm -hmm. I just want to touch uh, base to kind of uh, pull some of these issues together for our uh, listening audience. Uh, I think the issue here, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the EU is concerned with uh, data collection companies, such as Google and Facebook and the like, um, not keeping the information of an EU citizen private under the right to privacy that EU citizens have, and that, in fact, they're concerned that uh, data, I'm sorry, intelligence gathering folks like the NSA can get a hold of that data too easily for their citizens. Do I have it about right? 
that has been the concern, and now we have the EU uh, U.S. Privacy Shield, which is a new deal, and we believe that this is going to be handled. We also we believe that this is being addressed. Um, another important point, which was, uh, I guess, for all of the EU, uh, the 27 EU member countries, um, and it will affect our U.S. businesses here, is the EU General Data Protection Regulation has now passed. So basically what that's doing is that will impose a coherent uh, privacy le uh, legislation on all 27 EU member countries. What does that mean for us here? It means that all of our U.S. businesses that are doing business with the EU countries, um, either subsidiaries or maybe um, branches or offices in, in the EU, um, or that monitor or sell through the Internet to EU citizens, must comply with this new data protection regulation uh, by 2018. So, and if not, they will face some heavy penalties. So these are changes that we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of changes uh, as a result of the EU Privacy Shield deal, but more so in the next few years, we're going to require certain companies to have data protection officers, and uh, we're going to require a very short notice of any breaches. And, um, you know, there's, there's some other points in there that are going to be very important for our businesses and, you know, companies and individuals that are doing business with EU citizens. Right. Now, I, you know, in this country, in the United States, there are uh, many uh, hundreds of thousands of companies that some of which are certainly doing business uh, overseas, um, and they're not all big companies. You know, there's only about, uh, there's less than 4,000 what we would classify as big corporations that are multinational or large in the U.S., and everybody else, and I think there's something like 265,000 companies in the U.S. Are, are little guys. How are they going to possibly comply with this? You know, the, the United States government is choking them to death with regulation, and now they've got to layer on, on the EU, and we're concerned about how do we uh, stimulate trade. My concern is, are we about to choke off trade? Because there's just too much regulation. They, they can't manage it. It's easier just to bow out of it entirely. Well, this new EU data protection regulation is definitely the extraterritorial reach is a lot broader, and it will cover these companies. They will have to comply by 2018. There are a lot of regulations that are being passed in Europe um, that affect us, and the question is how is some of this going to be enforced. We, you know, the, the, the good news, I would say, is even though this is uh, broader uh, extraterritorial reach, we now are going to see a one-stop shop, which means if, if there's a company in the United States that is doing business or, you know, marketing or, you know, relating information to EU citizens and they get hacked, um, they will only have to report it to one privacy commissioner. They will not have to, one, one, one authority in Europe, they won't have to go to every single country that they're doing business with, and that's what we mean by one-stop shop. So if a company is right. doing business with France and Spain and Italy, there will be one place, and we're not sure which country, you know, will have that responsibility for which businesses, but that company will have, uh, it will be a streamlined process. So 
from legal costs and from trying to figure out those regulations, it will be a lot easier. There's only one set of regulations they have to comply with, whereas right now under the EU Data Protection Directive, you know, we have every one of those countries in Europe had adopted some degree of, um, of this regulation, but they were all different. So it, it was actually harder, uh, harder to comply with. Oh, interesting. Uh, Adriana, I'd like to go back a couple of couple of blocks and go back to Horizon 2020 for just a moment, uh, which is the primary uh, financial instrument to implement uh, the innovation union and uh, research and innovation programs in Europe. And one of the uh, issues. Uh, and I think that it may have had something to do with the UK dropping out, was that a good part of the money, the 80 billion pounds that are going to be used over a seven, eight year period, a lot of it's going to be coming from the UK. So if they've now bowed out, they're no longer going to be contributing to Horizon 20, 2020. Uh, how is that going to affect Horizon 2020 and the rest of Europe in terms of research and development, innovation, and for them to become a uh, more of a powerhouse than they have been the last number of decades? Do, well, do you see them being able to go forward without the UK uh, helpful investments? Yeah, I, I don't really know the effects that this is going to take, and I, we don't really know what the UK is going to do, whether they are going to somehow work. As, as I mentioned before, there are some other countries that are part of Horizon 2020 that are not part of the EU. Um, they are not actually EU uh, members. And so we really don't know what the UK is going to do yet with that. I, or at least I would say I don't, I have not, I don't have that information. Um, but what I can say is that Israel and Norway are both part of Horizon 2020, and they're not part of, uh, they're not one of the EU members. Um, the Horizon 2020 is, is a big deal, and the UK has been always involved with, uh, with innovation, and, uh, you know, London has been a hub for, for entrepreneurs, young startup companies, and uh, as long as they have good laws and, and good legislation in place, um, we'll continue to see people going there and, and, and you know, uh, the, 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 it all breaks down to what they can negotiate and what we can, we, you know, depending on what they negotiate, we'll be able to see if they continue with innovation. It's important for, for cross-fertilization to have people from different cultures working together and it all depends on whether or not they can do that in, in the UK. Portugal, you know, is one of the highest, has one of the highest startup survival rates in Europe. So we may see more people doing things there. Um, France has strong connections with China and Africa. And, uh, you know, Berlin and Munich are hubs also for innovation. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. In terms of uh, the uh, employees that are currently in another country, or even expatriates, uh, Andrea, what do you see happening with the Brexit? I, I guess my read of it is this is all going to come out in the wash. There's going to be very little impact. Everybody is nervous. Everybody's upset. But at the end of the day, it's going to be like Donald Trump trying to, uh, to uh, throw 11 million people out of this country. Never going to happen. Uh, I don't see any big upset in uh, 
Europe as well. Do you see this as a big issue? Well, we don't know yet. We know that the movement back and forth uh, through the UK into the rest of Europe has, you know, has been very easy up to now, uh, free movement of the workforce. And now we're going to see restrictions. What those restrictions look like, we don't know, and how they actually affect our companies and uh, our, our yeah, and manufacturing, how it's affected depends on, on what that looks like. Um, we can't really give, I, or at least I don't really know at this point until we know, um, you know, what, what the U.K. negotiates. What I can say is that the U.K. citizens, especially the young ones, are concerned because their right to live and work in 27 other countries is, is now gone. And uh, that was something that they enjoyed. Well, it certainly was easier for them to live and work. I, I still think they'll be able to do it just under different regulations as they uh, sort this all out. Right, um, but before but they I, had a right, before it was just like if you moved from California to Texas, you know. Right. And that, that's the difference. Um, whether or not they can, you know, yes, I'm sure that something will be worked out, but it's just it's going to be different. Sure, sure. Well, Andrea, we always appreciate your depth of knowledge on these topics. Thank you for being with us again here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, and we've been, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Adriana Sanford, who is Dean's Visiting Scholar at Georgetown University Law Center and Visiting Research Professor at the Universidad de Telca in Chile. She is, uh, I'm not sure if she's just bilingual or trilingual because uh, she travels up and down the Americas doing a lot of work on the international comparative law. Brilliant individual. We appreciate having her on the show, and uh, we look forward to uh, having her again on in the near future. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. We've got uh, – yeah, I did I did uh, forget to mention one news item before, and, and I think it's kind of interesting because we've talked a lot about it in the past, and that's about 3D printing. And uh, there was a – you know, a major event, uh, and, and I don't think many people really realize it, that when uh, Lockheed Martin uh, built uh, Juno, the satellite that went to uh, Jupiter, uh, that, you know, they spent a bi over a billion dollars on this mission. And um, a good part of that equipment was 3D printed. And uh, this is a big leap forward for uh, 3D printing in terms of manufacturers now realizing that this is not a, this is not a new technology. It's been around for decades, and, but the reliability factor has never really been put to the test. Uh, you know, they used to make uh, toys and they would make electronic components and, you know, if one broke, there was no big deal. If a 3D printed part breaks in Juno, there goes a billion dollars into the stars. So the Juno mission has really given a profound impact on the 3D manufacturing because of its now apparent reliability and uh, will remove a lot of skepticism from the, the U.S. and other countries manufacturing um, uh, uh, feel about using 3D in their production. And uh, so this is uh, – Here's here's a case where jobs will be created as a result of 3D printing and the reliability of the new uh, new products uh, that they can use this for. So I just wanted to bring that point up because we do talk a lot about 
uh, 3D printing, and uh, this is now one major forward step. Um, the uh, going forward here, uh, Tim and I uh, would like to comment uh, on uh, situations that have happened in the in the media as of recently regarding uh, all of the shootings that have happened and uh, the the event that happened in Dallas, and. Uh, we just want to talk about and give our sense of that and how, um, and if you think about it, how this could be affected by manufacturing or uh, could affect manufacturing. And uh, I, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that perhaps uh, our local states should not be looking for the U.S. government for help because they're drowning in their own uh, bile anyway. So it's cities and states that really should be looking to help the local population of their area to be able to uh, train people. You know, it all comes back to the skills gap, the unemployment uh, issues that exist in this country. And, uh, for example, um, we have uh, 42 million uh, blacks in the United States, Afri uh, uh, African Americans. 14 million are either unemployed or not in the workforce. And the group that's 16 to 25 years old who tend to get into trouble because they're either not in school or not in training or don't have jobs, 23% of them are unemployed, and that's not that they're not in the workforce. They are in the workforce, but they're not employed. So we feel as though that local government and cities, states, should be looking to create some manufacturing training. And again, don't look towards U.S. government. And we do know that uh, there are states we have in New Jersey, the New Jersey uh, uh, Institute of Technology uh, that does a lot of training. But I, I think that if, in fact, we are able to get kids, black, white, blue, whatever, to be interested in manufacturing, to get them into training, get them off the streets, they don't need to sell nickel bags of drugs. Um, I, I believe that uh, uh, Uncle Bernie was saying that there's 51% of the black community is unemployed. Um, I think Bernie might be doing drugs more than just his heart medication. Um, it, that's, that's a wild number, 51%. I would think that they would be literally rioting in the streets. Um, Tim, you want to throw in your hat on this one? Well, it, it is tragic that we have such high unemployment, and I know that Donald Trump came out recently and said the Four-point number, whatever it is now, 4.7, 4.9 unemployment, is yeah. strictly a number to make the president look good. He's absolutely correct. And, and that isn't correct just because Donald Trump said it. That's been right. correct for three decades. Yeah, I think, it's called the, I think it's called the U3 number, which is the presidential look-good number, and the U6, which is more reality. Yeah, it's a fudge. U3 is a fudge number. Basically what it says is if you're looking for a job actively with an unemployment office so they know that you're unemployed, then you're counted in that group, that mm -hmm. 4.6. But if you're 
not registered with an unemployment office, not getting an unemployment check, basically to the government, you don't exist. That's that true. Number, there's something like 92 million people, if you take the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics numbers and do some crunching in Excel, and you find out there's there's literally almost 90 million people unemployed in this country. I've, and heard, that, I've heard that number. We're talking about a skills gap of uh, you know three million jobs because the gray hairs are retiring out, and they don't know where they're going to get help. And you're actually right, Lou. You, you cannot look at this point to the federal government to do much of anything. Folks, they're broke. Bottom line is they're so far in debt they have no money. They're they're making it up as they go along by adding to the public debt. That would be our taxes in the future, our kids' tax and our grandkids' tax. So that's where we're stuck, and you're absolutely right, Lou. It's got to be at this point the states and the local municipalities that help solve the problem by getting training for these people. Well, taking that even a step further, uh, of the uh, and the number that I have here on my notes is three and a half million vacant jobs. Meanwhile, you have 1.5 million vets that are well trained, well educated, uh, compared to some and are available for jobs, they're well-disciplined, and they're available to jobs. And uh, I went to uh, an event recently um, about uh, hiring, hiring the vets, and uh, it's really quite incredible that these uh, people are not being picked up the way they, I think they should. And there's the other group. Uh, you know, we can't forget 51% of our population, the women. Women are going into manufacturing, and you have uh, womeninmanufacturing.org, uh, who has, I think, five or six chapters throughout the United States, also looking to promote women in manufacturing. And I thought I saw a news clip about a week ago or so that there was a contest uh, of welders, um, teenager uh, kids who took training in welding, and the uh, and I'm sorry for the gal who won it, but I don't remember her name, and she won Top Welder of the Year. And these people make good money. Yes, they do they make, make good money. money. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. In the war years, and Lou, you can give some numbers on that, we had yeah. Rosie the Riveter, <laughs> and I'm promoting Wendy the Welder now. So <laughs> what were the numbers right. in the war years? All the men were overseas, six million Women in the workforce, or that they had to find a job. Six million women in the United States went to work in the factory making the war machine, and the war was over. The troops came home, and everybody got fired. And, and that's, that's the way it yeah. went. And that was largely a skills gap back then. That was a six million person skills gap. Absolutely. Now, you know, you hear all of our uh, politicians talking about bring jobs back. You know, those lousy Chinese and the lousy Japanese and the Koreans, they're taking all our jobs. If we were to bring all these jobs back, we would then have 10 million vacant jobs and still nobody to fill them. So who are these politicians kidding? Well, they're trying to get well, the American public so that they can get votes. It's tragic. Well, They're misleading. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. It seems as though that uh, by trying to solve a problem, we'll make a problem worse and we're deceiving the American public. 
and frankly, uh, I'm, I'm going to throw a dart at the uh, media as well. They don't report the whole story. They don't report the truth when they do report the whole story. And I came to a, a, an awakening uh, just over the last week or so. I've really gotten tired of listening to uh, uh, Fox and CNN and listening to all their uh, rubbish stories. And I started listening to the, the BBC. And uh, every morning and every night when I come home and go to work and, and so on. And the BBC, it is amazing. The, the, the stories that they're telling are the same stories that were being told here in the United States, but about all the other countries. 200 people in Somalia last weekend were killed. Uh, in, in Iraq, it was something like 140 people were killed on the weekend. It, it's all about killing, maiming, destroying. Nobody's creating anything, and it is absolutely horrendous. And it is not just a U.S. problem. And so I think I'm going to go back to listening to 1950s rock and roll. <laughs> Less well, stressful. It, you know, it's true that the um, the American news media, which we hail as uh, some of the best in the world, got away from uh, in-depth journalism uh, probably 20 years ago, and now they're soundbite newsmakers and headline hunters. And you're right, they do not report the real in-depth story. They talk about 4.9% unemployment. They don't talk about the U6. They don't talk about real unemployment. They don't talk about how they can help these people in this country with uh, training. They just don't get into the stories. It's a uh, quick news story, move on to the next no. level. People believe that because that was a load of crap. Right. Terrible. And by the way, by the way, the numbers that I reported at the beginning of this segment were the A2 numbers regarding uh, Afro-Americans. So these are numbers. These are not my numbers. I'm supporting what I said. This is a number that the U.S. government came out with. And, and the real tragedy here is that these people are not trying to uh, create issues in America. You know, if you were um, of working age and you can't find a job, um, how do you raise a family? You know, they talk about uh, black families have 70% uh, absenteeism in the father and the family. Well, how is a guy going to support the family if he can't find a job in America? I mean, this is a real tragedy that the federal government's not addressing. And anybody who looks for the federal government as a first solution is kidding themselves. Uh, it's uh, It's been coming a long time, and frankly, in spite of everyone wringing their hands and saying, oh, we have to come together and we have to love one another and we have to do this and that, right now, the way I see it, it's all more just talk. You don't see and you don't hear anybody in the government, any of our, our congressmen, our senators, you don't hear them talking up the last week or two. They're all, they all went off the radar scope. He went into hiding. Yeah, they really did. Yeah, they did. They went into hiding. Uh, you know, Obama uh, has been talking it up. Um, frankly, I, I don't remember hearing Hillary talk a whole lot about it. They made their one, uh, one or two um, uh, comments, uh, extending condolences. You don't hear anybody really coming up with an idea, a plan, how to fix all of this stuff. Uh, the closest that came to it was the 
uh, sheriff of Dallas, and, and unfortunately I don't remember his name, I heard him being interviewed uh, yesterday who said to the people, he was out in the, out in the crowd during a protest and said, uh, don't, you know, get off the protesters line and come get a job working in the police force. And we will put you in the neighborhoods that you are protesting about and you can help fix the problem. Well, you know, it was a stroke of genius. I don't know if he had it planned or it was, uh, you know, a spur of the moment, but that was a good idea. It is a good idea. That's an excellent idea. Now, that means, you know, Dallas Police Department, unfortunately, they are uh, way down on their employment roles. They they are missing a lot of police. Um, In New York City, you know, we got 37,000, I think, 37,000 police. I mean, that's like the whole army troop. Um, I don't know if we could afford to do more. I don't know if Newark can afford to do more. But, you know, the government, instead of instead of uh, throwing money away on ridiculous programs that we have, uh, why not focus the monies on trying to fix these uh, uh, population issues or population problems? Uh, you know, we have a, a situation with our prison system. Thirty-seven percent of the people in jail are black. Thirty-seven percent are black, and they rep- the blacks represent thirteen percent of our population. That is incredible. Yes, it, it is, is probably absolutely a, probably a direct yes. result of the fact that they can't find a job, and they can't find training for jobs. And now, notice to spin this around, I will say that some of the Community colleges and tech schools, uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology is one standout. Uh, I haven't had a chance to talk with the Georgia uh, Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, Um, but there are a lot of good tech schools, a lot of good county colleges around the country who are starting to get in this game, and a lot of employers, including the folks we had on from a company last week, who are very tied into their local tech school, they're very tied into their local high school, um, and they're very big on training and, and continuing education and tuition reimbursement, very aggressive at, at training these people up. We don't have a shortage of people. We don't even have a shortage of people ready to work. We have a shortage of training to get people ready to work, and that's where we fall down. Track. Well, that, all, all of that and the following. The question is how many different types of local inner city programs are there, whether it's federal, city, or state, are actually trying to promote and uh, uh, get the young Afro-American off the street into a program and teach them that, you know, this is a cooler way to go than hanging out and being tough guys on the street. Now, there are a lot of people, and I heard the doctor who was operating on the the police officers uh, in Dallas who said that he, he, as an adult, when he leaves the hospital to go home, he's always frightened because he's not wearing the white coat because he in his life is of uh, the searches and harassment by uh, the police departments. He said he puts a white coat on 
uh, he he feels as safe as uh, pumpkin pie, but they just don't. Uh, he, they are all subjected to this issue, and um, you know, does uh, racism live in America? I guess it's probably true. Yeah, anybody who who thinks racism is racism isn't alive in America has got their head in the sand. Uh, we've all seen the, the police shootings of uh, unarmed blacks. It's not an easy call to make for an officer. It's not one they want to make, but there are there are situations where it's uh, it's out of hand. It's over the line. It's not necessary, and that's I can see why the folks who are running around with the signs that say Black Lives Matter are inflamed and enraged, and I get it. Uh, all lives matter, and I'm not trying to uh, diminish black lives in any way, uh, but it is unfortunate that some of the police officers in the country now are, are beginning to turn this into a wild west against blacks. I, I think it's a bit over the line, in my opinion. Did you happen to see the Dallas video? Uh, not the Dallas video, the... Um, 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 the one in Louisiana. Did you see that video? I, I didn't. I heard about it. I know that this was a uh, an individual who had several felony convictions. Um, he was not a uh, exactly the salt of the earth community citizen. He'd been in trouble all of his life. He was in fact armed. He wasn't cooperating. He was resisting arrest. But all that said. Did it require at that moment lethal force at point blank range? Although I understand the taser didn't work. This is right. a tough call that you know officers get into. And the unfortunate part is, if you look at that individual's rap sheet, he actually didn't use a gun in a prior crime. He carried one. He was a felon. Right. That's illegal. But I don't think he used one. Don't know if he would have used it or not. But what a mess! What a mess! Awful. I happen to have seen that video, and um, in my opinion, and I know we're a media company and we shouldn't be doing this, but I'm telling you, there was no way that that kid should have been shot. I mean, they shot him three, four times. He was down on the ground. Three cops were on him. I mean, he didn't draw the gun. He told them he had a gun, and they killed him. And I, I don't blame the uh, community for being uh, as outraged as they are. But, again, it comes back to, and I'm kind of bringing this round, back around the back of the barn, it all comes down to let's get them educated, get them trained, get them jobs. We have tons of jobs. We bring, If we do, in fact, bring back uh, jobs because of reshoring, which – I don't know if that's really working or not, uh, but if we do bring back jobs, um, we're, we're going to have 10 million vacancies. Uh, you've got 14 million blacks unemployed. You've got women who are looking to be employed. You probably have about 20 million people without touching the 92 million. Yes, yeah, so you so, have veterans who are going to be coming back from overseas, highly skilled people, yeah. all, kinds of, all kinds of people. Lou, you're right. We don't have a people shortage. We have a we have a skill we have a training failure in this country. Yeah, maybe you and I should run for president. Yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> there might be some common sense at the hill. <laughs> All right. Well, I I, I think that uh, uh, we're we're coming up on uh, near the end of the show, and I just wanted to mention who we have on for next week. If I can find my notes, being that I got all wrapped up with uh, um, this this topic that uh, gets me very emotional. Um, we are going to have uh, next week. Um, a company called Potomac Photonics, and Mike Edelstein is uh, with us to explain how uh, mixing old technologies with new technologies gives you uh, kind of an extra um, oomph in your manufacturing without having to spend a whole lot of money. Uh, we're also going to have uh, uh, Chad Nutre, who's the chief economist with the National Association of Manufacturers. Uh, and he's going to give us his perspective on, on Brexit, Brexit and uh, what's, in for, what's in store for manufacturers here and abroad. And hopefully we can get him to talk a little bit about his Monday morning uh, economic report that comes out, obviously, every Monday morning, which is a, a real great read on what happened last week. And uh, so we're looking forward to having uh, Chad with us. And uh, on that note, Tim, I flip it back to you. Thanks, Lou. We certainly appreciate the opportunity to share our opinions on the show. Normally, we don't get into these kind of subjects, but Lou and I felt that it was necessary and appropriate to address it because it does relate back to manufacturing. I think we would have far fewer problems in the country if we had far more people working. The jobs are there. The training is not Look to the states, look to your municipalities, your county colleges, and your tech schools for the solutions. And with that, we're going to wrap up today's show. We look forward to you tuning in next week. Please tell your friends about Manufacturing Talk Radio. They may want to come and listen to our personal silence on this show or going back to our website and listen to any previous shows. But we appreciate every listening we've got, and we'll talk to you again next week on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.